All right, the nature of the church. What is the church? The church is the community of all true believers for all time. Now, um, I'm saying that because this allows the definition to include Old Testament believers as well. And I'm going to argue that we should think of the church as including people all the way back to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and the believers uh, and Moses, uh, all the way back to the beginning of uh, the history of people being saved in the gospel, I guess, with Abel when he offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, all the way up to 2008 here in Scottsdale Bible Church and all the way on into um, ultimately those who will yet be saved, the community of all true believers for all time. Why do I think that? Well, there are a number of verses that use the word church or the Greek word ekklesia in that way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, it looks as though all the people for whom Christ died are viewed as the church. It isn't that Christ loved the church and some other groups as well and gave himself up for them. It's the image of Christ gave himself up for the church. That would be everybody who was forgiven by the work of Christ. Old Testament believers who looked forward to his work and us as new covenant believers and we look back and trust his work. Um, Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Mark 16, 18, or, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, uh, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building and uh, increasing the church by drawing believers to himself. So that's a reminder that the church grows as Christ builds it, as he adds believers to the church. And, um, but that idea of Jesus adding people to the church, it's just the continuation of a process that began back in the Old Testament when God began to call a group of people to himself. And so we look back <clears throat> in Deuteronomy, for instance, and uh, Moses says to the people of Israel, on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that's another name for Mount Sinai, the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I, may, that, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me. Now that's, that's um, gathering the people at Mount Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments. They stood in the Lord's presence. That command, the, the Greek verb there, uh, ekklesiatson, ekklesiatson, that is a, a, a verb, uh, which means to gather, and it's the verb that's related to the noun ecclesia, uh, the noun for church in the New Testament. So it's kind of a, an idea of God beginning to gather a group of people to himself, even in the Old Testament. Acts 7.38, Stephen says, uh, this is the one who was with the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us, again, with the congregation in the wilderness. Eric, can you turn that down just a little bit? I'm getting a little feedback in the... Um, thank you very much. It's good to have an, somebody right there <laughs> when I stray over a little bit. Okay. Um, and uh, the congregation in the wilderness, Acts 7.38, is really ecclesia. It's the same word that is sometimes translated church, and I suppose he could translate it here, church. Uh, Moses was with the church in the wilderness calling the Old Testament people of God a church. Um, and Hebrews 12, 22 to 23, you have come to the, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, he says, to New Testament believers, but you have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Again, it's the same word, ecclesia. You could say you've come to the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. That is, after all these witnesses that he's talked about, I think these Old Testament believers, they gather together with us when we sing praise to God in worship, and that assembly in heaven is called, uh, in the same word for the New Testament, church. And uh, this word, ecclesia, church, it wasn't a word that the New Testament writers like Paul made up and said, oh, well, here's a new word to talk about a group of God's people. But it's a word that was used 69 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it was used to speak of the congregation of God's people when they assembled. And so uh, the New Testament just took over a word that was used in the Old Testament. It would have 
kind of resounded in the ears of New Testament readers when Paul said to the church of God at Corinth, to the church of God uh, at Thessalonica, it, they would have had those echoes of the Old Testament assembly of God's people. Uh, and they would have thought, oh, to the assembly of God at Corinth, like there was an assembly of God's people in the Old Testament. So it looks like <clears throat> um, God is just continuing the process of calling a group of people to himself to serve and worship him, to listen to him, to obey him and trust him. But that, that process was begun long before. Now, when I say that, I'm taking one view in the, among um, people who write and teach about theology. There, there is another view. An alternative view is many, at the bottom of that slide, many others would say the church began in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Um, and uh, there's another theology book uh, out there that is widely used by Millard Erickson, who's a, a friend of mine, and he and actually he and I actually used to go to the same church in Minnesota a long time ago when I when I taught at a college there, Bethel College, and uh, but he says the church began at Pentecost. The church began in Acts two on the day of Pentecost, and well, because of what I've said, I think no, it's just a continuation of an assembly of God. God calling an assembly of people to himself. But I can see that there is kind of a newness to the church at Pentecost anyway. The Holy Spirit has poured out a new fullness, and churches began to meet in congregations separate from the Jewish synagogues. And, <clears throat> and, so, um, and so there is some kind of newness there, uh, though I don't quite agree that that's the beginning of the church. It's, it's in a way, it's a little bit of a question of what, what word you want to use. Both sides agree that people were saved, of course, in the Old Testament by faith in the Messiah. In the Old Testament, people looked forward to Christ who was to come, and by that, by faith, they were saved. And Paul in Romans 4 can say that David was saved by faith and Abraham was saved by faith, uh, just as we are. So there's not a huge disagreement there. But out of fairness, I just ought to say, some people say the church began at Pentecost. I would say, no, it's all believers for all time. The nature of the church. I want to say a whole number of things about what the church is like. First, the church is invisible yet visible. Now, what do we mean by that? The invisible church is the church as God sees it. Now, we're going to the... Um, some of you were first-hour service, and, and Margaret and I are going to third-hour service over here this morning going to the church, you look around, here's everybody at Scottsdale Bible Church, 1,500 or more people in this. Are all those people born-again Christians? Probably not. They're just maybe people who say, oh, what's this interesting building? I think I'll just stop here this morning. Or there, or there may be people who just visit for the first time, or people who've been brought by friends, and they don't profess to be believers. And so you look at, you, look, you kind of look at this whole congregation, hey, here's the church, 1,500 people, but God looks at it and says only 1,327 are really believers <laughs> because he knows everybody's heart. Does that make sense? <clears throat> but we can't see that. So we say there's, that's the invisible church, the church as God sees it. And what about those people just five or six houses down the street here in the neighborhood who just didn't get up? They're, they're believers, but they just didn't get up to come to church this morning. Are they part of the church? Yes, says Neville. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> sure they are. Or, or if you didn't get up this morning, you're still part of the church. If Clyde didn't wake up this morning, <laughs> and I wouldn't get my handout photocopied, <clears throat> he'd still be part of the invisible church, even though he isn't with the church this morning. All right? Is that, am I making sense here? So the invisible church is the church as God sees it. And we can never be sure you know, exactly what the outlines of the invisible church look like, but um, 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. Why? Because God sees our hearts. 1 Samuel 16.17, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So there's the invisible church as God sees it. And then the visible church, that's what we see. The visible church is the church as Christians on earth see it. And so that's what the New Testament authors are writing to. <clears throat> Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is at Corinth. That means everybody who comes together on a Sunday. That's what you see. It's the outward manifestation of it. Or uh, Paul writes in Philemon 1 and 2, to Philemon and Aphia and Archippus and the church 
in your house. That means all the people who come together on a Sunday morning. So the visible church is the church as we see it, but it will always include some unbelievers. Well, it will conclude unbelievers who, you know, just come in and say, hey, I'm a visitor. I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I just, I just want to see what's going on here. I'm not, I'm, I was going to say, I'm not a Christian. I'm a newspaper reporter. Or, you know, <laughs> sorry, there are a lot of Christians in the newspaper. I should say, I'm not a Christian. I'm a lawyer. No, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, uh, so there will always be some unbelievers. Uh, Paul says in Acts 20, 29 to 30, a surprising statement. He's meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, from among the elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves. Isn't that something? Even among these trusted people at, at Ephesus, what about Jesus' disciples? See, there was one, wasn't there? Judas, who kind of gave an appearance of being a disciple, but, but he wasn't. Wasn't born again, wasn't saved. And Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But you say, well, how are we going to know? How can we tell if someone's a genuine believer or not? Maybe we shouldn't go to this class anymore. Maybe the teacher is not a believer. Well, what do you think? See, how do you tell? Well, Jesus gave a test. He said, you, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? He's saying, look at their fruits. And I think we could think of fruit in, in two senses. One, obviously, the result of people's lives. The result. What, what happens? What's the impact on other people? And then the character traits, the love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit in, in uh, Galatians 5. And just think back the, the history of people you've known, different churches you've been in. Can you think of any people who are just, they're just awful to get along with. They're just irritable and crabby and critical. And, and you put them on a committee and they just bring division and strife to the committee. And the church tries to do something and the person is just always criticizing, complaining, grumbling, obstructing. No good fruit. It's all negative fruit. You see, Jesus is saying you'll know them by their fruits. Okay, there's, there's kind of the test. So the visible church includes unbelievers. Um, and, whoa, way back, what, 5th century, Augustine said, I'll just get this quotation, many sheep are without and many wolves are within. Hmm. So we've got the church invisible. God knows it. The visible church as we see it. I've got a couple of points to make by way of clarification here. I'm not saying that the visible church is the church as the secular world sees it. Because the secular world will count in the church Many groups that teach such doctrine contrary to Scripture that we would not count them a true church. And I'm going to get into true churches and false churches in a minute. I'm going to say the Jehovah's Witnesses are a false church, for instance. If you believe what they teach, you're not going to be saved. And I'm going to say that the Mormons are a false church, for instance. If you believe what they teach, you won't be saved. And way over on the really liberal end of Protestantism, there are churches that really deny all the essential teachings of the Christian faith. They, they really think that Christianity is an entirely human religion. And they profess to be churches. They have the name of being a church, but they're not a true church. The definition, just if you remember, what, what defines liberalism, it's thinking of Christianity as an entirely man-made religion. So the Bible is not words from God through human authors. It's just human authors. 
who kind of wrote about their religious ideas. It's a human book. God, well, whatever we say about God, it's just the imagination of our mind making up things about what we think God is. We can't ever really know God. That's liberalism. Jesus, a great example, a great teacher, but not God, not the Savior you trust in. Just a teacher to imitate, a human being, mere human. Jesus, not the Savior who bore the punishment for our sins, but just someone who showed us how to suffer unjust punishment. That's a human religion. Sin that has to be forgiven? No, don't ever think you have sin that has to be forgiven by God. That's just sort of the result of the way you were brought up, and you've got some bad behavior patterns. It's not your fault. It's the fault of society or the environment because everything's human-centered. So that's, that's liberalism. And so you don't need to pray for forgiveness of sins. You just need to work on some self-improvement projects. And, in fact, we can help you with that. <laughs> that's liberalism. Jesus coming back to reign over the earth in bodily form as king someday, that's just a myth. That's just a dream. That's liberalism. Okay, that's just something early Christians made up. Well, if you go to a church that teaches that, that's not a Christian church. See, that now they'll be counted in a survey of what, you know, how many Christian churches are, and they'll count all the more liberal denominations that preach all these things contrary to Scripture. But that wouldn't be the church as we on earth see it even. That would just be the visible church according to... Um, I don't know, the U.S. Census Bureau report or something like that. But the church, according to people who attend and are active at a Bible-believing church, that's very close. That's, that's the visible church, and that's closer to the invisible church, but never 100%. All right, are you happy with that distinction? Is that, is that okay? Um, okay. Can we go on? Or do you want, to, you want to talk about that for a minute? Visible and invisible? That's kind of... Okay. It's a really important distinction at the time of the Reformation, beginning 1517 with Martin Luther. Martin Luther eventually kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church and... or forced out. And... Uh, Luther and then Calvin after him, 16th century as well, they emphasize the truth that the invisible church is the church that teaches the word of God truly. And they said the Roman Catholic Church is not the true church because they've departed from the teaching of the word of God about justification by faith alone, about that our works don't contribute to salvation, and other things where Luther criticized the Catholic Church. When the Catholic Church said, well, we have the organization. We've got laying on of hands from the, starting from Peter down through the other, uh, uh, the, from the apostles to the bishops of the church, and, and we have the organization. And, and John Calvin and Martin Luther said, well, you have the outward organization. You've got the, the kind of the visible organization there, but the true church isn't that. The true church is where the word of God is truly preached. And so the visible organization doesn't count unless you're faithful to the Word of God. That was the difference at the time of the Reformation. Okay? Okay, we'll go on. The church is local and universal. Um, this is just kind of a, a good thing to bear in mind, that the New Testament can use the word church of a, of a house group, a house church. Romans 16.5, greet also the church in their house. And there are a lot of verses like that. The church in so-and-so's house. Church, they met in homes. Okay, then there's a church in a city, the church of God that is in Corinth. That's in the whole city, including a number of local house churches. And then Acts 9.31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. That's not a city. How big is Judea and Galilee and Samaria? Judea is southern part of Israel. Galilee is the northern part. Samaria is that part in the middle. That's the whole land of Israel. The church throughout all, it's hundreds of local churches, wasn't it? See, and here the word church in Acts 9.31 can be used of that church in a region. So we could speak of the church in Arizona. Kind of similar idea. Or the church in Phoenix would be all believing churches in Phoenix. And then 
you can talk about the worldwide church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has appointed in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And when he includes apostles, apostles are not just for one local church like Corinth. There weren't any apostles appointed in Corinth. Apostles were for the whole church. And so when Paul says God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, that's the church universal. Or Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that's the church universal. Why is that important? It's important because there's a little movement within the Christian world that says the only true church is a citywide church. And I think there's a church up here on Scottsdale Road called City Church of Scottsdale that started out that way. Um, well, I think they've, Daryl tells me that they've kind of not, not, don't hold that so much anymore, and so that's fine. But, but there, there have been various people who said, well, there should only be one church in Boston, and there should only be one church in New York, and only one church in Los Angeles. Which church would that happen to be? Well, it would happen to be our church, which is called, <laughs> which we just named, the, you know, the Church of Philadelphia or something like that. And they said, well, isn't that the New Testament pattern? You've got the church in Corinth, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Philadelphia. And my answer is, no, that's not the entire New Testament pattern. That's a common usage, but there's a church in a house, there's a church in a region, there's a church uh, universal. All right, so you can talk about it in any, any sense. All right, that's just a little two-minute P.S., and come to expression at different levels. Then, here's another thing. This is just kind of some helpful background understandings of what a church is. Metaphors for the church. Well, in one way, the church is a family. Paul says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. He's saying, hey, treat each other like family. Isn't he? Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. Or there's another and, and what's the good of that metaphor? Well, it helps us remember we're all on the same team. We're all part of the same family. We care for each other. Uh, what's the, this other metaphor, the bride of Christ? I, I, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 has that image as well. That's another metaphor, and that helps us understand that we, uh, we are the objects of Christ's love. He loves us as a husband would love his bride. And uh, he cares for us, and there's a lot of teaching on marriage that has to do with wives being subject to their husband's leadership and husbands loving their wives in Ephesians 5. It's built on that metaphor. There's another one. We're branches on a vine. I'm the vine, you are the branches, John 15. Uh, there's another one. There's a metaphor for an olive tree. Remember, Israel was broken off, and you Gentiles were grafted in. That's in Romans 11. That's another metaphor. Or you're a field of crops. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. So you are God's field, a field of crops. Did you, how do you like being a field? You oat or wheats or corn? I don't know what you are. Apples, maybe. <laughs> so that's another image. What does that teach us? I suppose it teaches us patience, that people grow over time. As they grow, they bring more benefit to, to the Lord and to his kingdom and Every metaphor you can think about, ponder, turn around in your mind a little bit and say, well, that teaches us a new idea, a new thought, a new, new insight into the church. The church is a building. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, you are God's field, you are God's building. It's a harvest, Matthew 13. It's a new temple. You're the temple of God. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem that we have to go to to worship anymore because all together we make up a temple. And we're a group of priests or a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2, 5. Did you feel like being a priest this morning? Well, you are. What does that metaphor teach us, priests? Yeah, we bring sacrifices to God, and our sacrifice is what? Worship is our sacrifice. There's another thing that Hebrews 13 says, sacrifice. Adoration, okay. There's another thing that's a sacrifice to God. Our bodies are sacrifices, Romans 2, or 12, okay, and then... There's another one in Romans 13, just after it says we offer up the fruit of lips, which is our lips, a sacrifice of praise. Then it says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such offerings are a sacrifice, pleasing to God. And so when you give food to Marty to bring to somebody who's shut in or needs food, needs meals, just think of that as a sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13, where's that verse? We need that, Marty, for you and for people who are helping bring meals. See Hebrews 13. Thirteen, sixteen. do not neglect to do good and to share the casseroles that you have. <clears throat> for, 
for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Hebrews 13, 16. There's a verse for that ministry. Marty, you're bringing food to people who are in, who are in illness or need, need a meal. Just think of that as, hey, I'm bringing a sacrifice to God. Just like people would bring animals to the Old Testament temple and sacrifice, and God would say, I'm pleased with that. So you deliver food to Marty, she delivers food to people shut in. That's a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And I think, too, you write a check to Alliance Defense Fund because it's sharing what you have. Think of that as, hey, I'm giving a sacrifice to God out of my checkbook. See, now, this idea of being a priest, we have the ability to make sacrifices that are pleasing to God. We don't bring those animals anymore and the green offerings, but all the other things we do, our time, our effort, our caring for people, you call up somebody and you heard, you heard the person sick or lost a job or something, you say, how are you doing? I just want to encourage you. That's a sacrifice. It's pleasing. Did you ever think of that? See, this metaphor of being a priest makes that vivid because we're a kingdom of priests and all those things we do for others and do for the church like sacrifices. So that's a helpful metaphor. And then Hebrews 3, 6, you are God's house. You are God's house, provided that you continue in the faith. I think that's what it said, stable and steadfast, something like that. So uh, again, there's a different image. That means probably you can get this idea of different houses, different rooms and different functions, and also uh, being a household uh, that uh, we can relate to each other. It's kind of related to the family metaphor. Isn't that interesting? You get all these different metaphors. Uh, what does the branches on a vine teach us? Stay in close fellowship with Jesus because it's in fellowship with him that we bear fruit. So the different metaphors teach, are you with me? They teach us different things. Okay, good. There's another one that I've missed that's a really common one. How about the body of Christ? Yep. Okay. That's the, almost the first one that people think of. And, uh, and that's an important one. But in fact, that's a kind of a complex one because it's used in two ways in the New Testament. First, we could say the whole body, that is, the church is like a body because here, the ear, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So body including eyes and ears, and Paul is saying there, one, peop- one person has some gifts and does some things, another person has another, gifts and do- another gift and does other things. Mike manages the website. And I didn't tell you when we were in Europe, we met other people who listened to this class over in Europe from the website that you said, remember you said, I don't know how to run a website, but I'm going to try to learn how and set it up. It's amazing. Hello, over in Europe, how are you? Uh, so now I have to be much more careful what I say. <laughs> well, I can't joke around too long because people, otherwise the people listening, why am I listening to this stupid lesson? All right. Uh, so, but I don't do that. So, so should I say, oh, because I don't run the website, I'm not any good in the, no, because maybe I'm bringing meals to somebody. That's another part. Maybe I'm setting up chairs. Maybe I'm doing what Daryl and Eric are doing, I'm running the light and running the sound. Maybe I'm doing what Clyde is doing and handing out the, the photocopy. Well, we're doing a lot of things. And a lot of you do non-official ministries, just caring for other people and ministering to them. So that's all important. Okay? And I, I forgot your name. Starts with a D. Dudley. When I said Dudley's here and Laurel is still back in New Mexico, if you can reach out and kind of befriend them, that'd be really nice. I'm just saying, hey, here they are. They're just coming into the class. Is there a way? Not everybody, but some of you could just say hello. And that's just a little way of offering sacrifice to the Lord, contributing to the building up of the body, welcoming them as members of the family. You see? All those metaphors help us. And so here's the eye and ear saying, you don't have to do what other people do, but do what God calls you to do. But look, is that using the head? Are we part of the head in that Im- image? See, we are, because eye and ear, those, last time I checked, those are in your head. Okay, so that's one body metaphor. Then there's another one where we're not part of the head because Christ is the head and we're the rest of the body. So... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow. It builds itself up in love. So there, Christ is the head, we're the rest of the body. That's a different metaphor. It's kind of related, but it, it's helpful to keep them sep- separate and distinct because they kind of teach different things. Why do I say there are at least 12 different metaphors that the New Testament uses to talk about the church? What's the point of that? Oh, I've been talking too long. Somebody help me. What's the use of seeing all these different metaphors? Helps Helps different learning styles? Yeah, because some we get to these different pictures in our minds. So that's a that's a help. What else? What's the value? It's your personal identity. That is, you can, you can think about how you fit in. Okay, oh, good. Okay, 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 good. What's your name? Sherry Sherry? Okay, thanks, Sherry Anderson. Okay, it's your personal identity. Christ says that's who you are, so you are a priest. You are a family. You are a body of Christ. You are all that. Okay, good. That's good. Good. Anything else? Yeah, John? Okay, go ahead and say it again. It was real... Taking God's deeper truths and putting them into uh, human terms so that we can understand it better. Yeah, okay. We really understand those. You know what a, what a house is. Well, you're a house builder. Um, and we know what a family is. And we know what a, what a body is. And we know what a vine is. So what, that's like getting it down to our level that we can identify with and understand. That's really useful. Okay, good. Thanks. There's one other thing, and there's, the reason I say there are at least 12, we could probably find some more, is so we won't focus too much on just one. And see, sometimes I've heard people say, we're the body of Christ, we're the body of Christ, we're the body of Christ. And then they go to, again, with, and they're, I don't disagree with everything in Roman Catholic teaching because there are many things I agree with with our Roman Catholic friends. But when the Roman Catholic Church begins to say, we are the incarnation, of Christ in the world now, because we're the body of Christ. And I say, wait a minute, no, incarnation, that is God in the flesh. No, that's just Jesus. That's not us. And the body is just one image among many. Don't push it too far. So I don't want us to overuse any one of those uh, to the exclusion of the others, okay? Can we go on? Going too fast? Four points. Okay, here comes number five. And the reason I say going too fast, I know you can understand all this, but the problem is, if it goes really, really fast, then you walk out and you say, and somebody says, what, did, what was the class about this morning? You say, I don't know. <laughs> There's too many things. All right, well, you got the outline anyway. Okay, let's try this, uh, number five. See if we can do this. The church and Israel. This is a topic that 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, people got really, really heated about. And it divided whole groups in Protestantism. And today, it's not such a big deal anymore, as I understand it. But it does distinguish a whole area of the evangelical world called dispensationalism from the rest of the world that's non-dispensational, or sometimes is called covenant theology, And it has to do with what you think of Israel. In older dispensationalism, there was a huge difference between the church and Israel. And Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary, was the first president. Lewis Berry Chafer had a classical dispensational view. He said, God has two distinct plans for two different groups of people that he has redeemed. Oh, interesting. Two different groups of people that God has redeemed. God's purposes and promises for Israel are for earthly blessings, and they will yet be fulfilled on this earth at some time in the future. On the other hand, God's purposes and promises for the church are for heavenly blessings And those promises will be fulfilled in heaven. And the reason that Dr. Schaefer is saying this 
is that he says the Old Testament promised to Abraham the land, land of Israel. And that's on the earth. Land means land, and land of Israel means Israel, and from Dan to Beersheba, the Jewish people are going to inherit that land. They're going to live in it with God's blessing, trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. (laughs) And it was prophesied in the Old Testament. It wasn't yet fulfilled, so it's going to be fulfilled. And you can feel the, the persuasive force of that argument. And actually, the history of Scottsdale Bible Church comes out of that background. And when a lot of Protestantism was going more and more in a liberal direction in the 20s, 30s, and 40s in the United States, Dallas Seminary and Talbot Seminary and a number of dispensational churches held firm, and they did not yield to liberalism, and it was a wonderful help. And there's not a person in this room who hasn't been positively affected by dispensationalism, including myself. Dispensationalism produced the Schofield Reference Bible, which was the first study Bible I had when I was growing up. And I agree with 98% or 95% of what's in there probably, except the distinctive parts that have to do with this particular topic. Over time, in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, the professors at Dallas Seminary and the professors at Talbot Seminary, many of whom are my friends, began to move a little bit and say, well, we don't want to make such a, such a strict distinction between the church and Israel. And so they moved from classical dispensationalism to a progressive dispensational view. And Daryl Bach, who preached here in this church two, three months ago, Craig Blazing, who, was, uh, who now is at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary as their academic dean and a former president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and so is Daryl Bach, both friends of mine. They and Robert Sosi at Talbot, who's a friend and a really, really godly man, they began to promote a progressive dispensationalism. Instead of saying God has two distinct plans for two different groups of people, Israel on the earth, the church in heaven, which would mainly be in the millennium, they began to say, well, okay, God has a single purpose for Israel and the church, and the purpose is establishing the kingdom of God. And so there's no distinction between Israel and the church in the future eternal state. That's a difference. Whereas the the classic dispensationalism would say, on into the new heavens and new earth, there are going to still be two groups of people, two two groups of people of God. There's going to be Israel and there's going to be the church and they'll be friends, but they'll be two distinct groups forever. Progressive dispensationalism, which is where most of the dispensationalists and dispensational institutions are today, would say that the church and Israel eventually will come together into one group, the people of God, in the kingdom of God. And so they would say there is no distinction between Israel and the church in the future eternal state. But they want to say, wait a minute, the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel will still be fulfilled in the millennium by ethnic Jewish people who will believe in Christ and live in the land of Israel as a model nation. So there's still going to be a fulfillment of, to your descendants, I will give this land. Okay? But that's still different from the church because the church has been caught up into heaven during the millennium. During that time after Christ returns secretly to take all believers to himself, okay? And I think maybe every faculty member at Phoenix Seminary except me believes that. Oh, man. Maybe, I'm not sure if John Del Husseis now holds to this or not. Israel in the millennium. Okay. Uh Uh-oh. So now, what kind of teacher did you get here anyway? What is a non-dispensational view? It's going to be very close, but there's still, I think, a difference. 
a non-dispensational view, which is the view that seems to me to be right, is that the church is now the new Israel or the new people of God. And so that it seems to me that those promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled, but we've become the new Israel. We've become the new Israel of God, which includes Jewish and Gentile Christians both. So, Paul can say in Romans 2, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. So it's not just outward physical descent from a Jewish family, but a Jew is one who trusts in Christ as Savior. That is inward faith. And Romans 4, 11 to 12, Abraham received circumcision while he, uh, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So what was it that made him a true child of God? It was the faith that he had, and the circumcision was a sign. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's Gentiles in the New Testament. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well and make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So this is all who believe. From Jewish background and Gentile background, Abraham is the father of us all. So if Abraham is the father of us all, aren't we all the new Israel? That would be how I would argue. And Romans 6, Romans 9, 6 to 8, it's not as though the word of God had failed. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel because there are unbelieving Jews. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Ishmael was Abraham's offspring. But see, he wasn't the part of the true people of God. But it's through Isaac. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So the promise comes to those who trust in God. So we're all now part of the new Israel of God. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And Ephesians 2, God himself is, or Christ himself is our peace. He has made us both one, Jew and Gentile. He's made Jews and Gentiles one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So now I'm saying God has one new people that is the church, the people of God, and we are the new Israel, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race. Who was the chosen race in the Old Testament? Israel, okay. You are a royal priesthood. Who was the priesthood in the Old Testament? It was Levites from Israel, right? Now you're the priesthood. You are a holy nation. Who was the holy nation in the Old Testament? Israel. You are a people for his own possession. Another phrase that's used in the Old Testament of the people of Israel. That you, might, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So it seems to me that the church is the new Israel and the new people of God. Now, when I came to interview to teach at Phoenix Seminary, I didn't know what questions I was going to get asked, but one question the faculty asked me is, what do you think about the future of Israel? And I said, well, it looks to me from Romans 11 that they're going to be grafted back into their own olive tree, that someday there's going to be a great revival of the Jewish people. And I think that the establishment of Israel as a nation, after centuries of being scattered, that that's God's preparation for this great revival that's going to come to the Jewish people, promised in Romans 11, when, the, when, they're, when they're grafted back into their own olive tree and they, they, there's a... Um, a new uh, ingathering of the Jewish people, and I think that's going to happen, and I hope it happens even in our lifetime. So I do believe there will be a massive turning of people of ethnic Jewish descent to Christ at some time in the future, and Romans 11 teaches me that. And so am I a dispensationalist? No, because I don't think that's going to be a separate group for God. I think it's going to just, they'll become part of the church as Jewish believers today become part of Scottsdale Bible Church, 
when they come from a Jewish background and are saved. So it's kind of a fine point. A non-dispensationalist. <laughs> what do I call myself? So, so the, 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 the differences between dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists in, in, uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s were many, many different things about how you viewed the Gospels and, and how you viewed the church as parentheses and God's plan and things like that. Now the differences are down to what do you think is going to happen in the millennium to, to Jews and Jewish believers and, and Gentile believers? Will they be one group or not? And then there's a second difference. Do you think that Christ is coming back before or after the Great Tribulation? And the, Jew, the dispensationalists have to say that Jesus comes back before the tribulation because the church gets caught up to heaven, gets heavenly blessings, the people of Israel on earth begin to turn to Christ, and the Old Testament promises are fulfilled about the land. Now here's my problem. What do I say about the Old Testament promises about to your descendants I will give this land? I think that, I think, that, what do I think about that? <laughs> I think that, um, I think that the land probably is expanded to, to the whole earth, and God's going to give all of us the inheritance of a much greater fulfillment, even than was promised, and that um, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to reign and have us reign with him over the whole earth, so that the promise is, is fulfilled, yes, in the land of Israel, but over everything. So are there much differences then? Not that I know of. When, 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 um, let me give a couple of examples. Um, see, if, if the only differences in what you believe are what you think is going to happen in the future, it's really hard to make a final decision because the future hasn't happened yet. Are, are you with me on that? So I don't think anybody interviewing somebody for the elder board at Scottsdale Bible Church, for instance, would say, do you think Israel will be a separate people in the millennium or not? I just don't think it would come up. It's not in the statement of faith. It's kind of how you understand the predictions of the future. That's the, that's the difference. And when... I don't even remember when Pastor Jamie interviewed here if anybody asked him whether he was a dispensationalist or not. And when I taught at Trinity, half the faculty were dispensationalists and half weren't. And here most are dispensationalists at Phoenix Seminary, but they said, well, we'll let you in. <laughs> so, and it isn't anything that I teach about very much. But I just thought I would bring... Do you want to... I think we're right at the end of time, so... And, and you see, the next thing we're going to talk about Oh, the church and the kingdom, and then it's going to be next week, how do you tell the difference between a true and a false church? And what about Scottsdale Bible Church? What about liberal Protestant churches, Mormons? Okay, we'll get on to that next week, but I'll just stop here now. What do you think? Do you want to talk about that dispensational view or not? Oh, I, I know another thing. I've been general editor of the ESV Study Bible, and in all the passages that have to do with prophecies about the future, we were careful to include both views. So, so uh, Daryl Bach, for instance, at Dallas Seminary, looked over our gospel explanations, and, 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 we, and we wanted both, and in the book of Revelation, we said some people hold this and some people hold that. So, okay? It seemed to be an issue on which we couldn't see that it made a lot of difference for other things. Everybody thinks Jesus is coming back. Ed? Where do you... Where do you put the 144,000? <sighs> um, you caught me on a spot where I just, I'm just going to have to say, I've got to go back and look at the passage again. It's people in the book of Revelation. They're somehow believers that have been redeemed from the earth. It, it just might be symbolic of all believers for all time. It might be symbol for, or an indication of people who've been rescued from tribulation. And I can't remember what... I just, sorry. That's where you wish this wasn't on the tape. Okay. We, okay. And what else? Yeah, Brian. Oh, and well, we've got to quit after this. Wayne, um, one of, I, I take a, a non-dispensational view as well, uh, but one of the 
things that come up from time to time that just really frustrates me is, is how um, in the New Testament especially, God, uh, Jesus is striving for, he talks about unity yep. and about how the dividing wall between Jews and the yep. Gentiles have been broken. And yet I, I look at the Old Testament and I think, well, why does God have a separate nation called out and then, even then, within that nation, there's only a remnant that are truly his people. Yep. And then, um, it, it makes me wonder why, why God did it all that way as opposed to just more of a, I guess I just want to look at things too much of a black and white situation where mm-hmm. these are my people and these are not, and yep. that's it, as yep. opposed to people within people and so forth. Yep. I think because faith was really important, and faith is invisible. You see evidences of it, but you don't actually see faith in people's hearts. And so from the very beginning, uh, uh, Hebrews 11 talks about faith being the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, whoever would come to God must believe that he is. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So that, that, that it was God's purpose not to just save people by an outward action, that everybody could see, but by something inward in the heart and that's voluntary. And that goes to the work of Alliance Defense Fund. We're not a a state-governed church. We're a church where there's a voluntary... The church membership is voluntary. It's because it's an inward heart decision. And in order to do that, it was something that in a way has to be invisible. I don't know if that's the whole of it. And why God decided to work through one people first and then to all nations... We could talk about that for a long time. I don't know if there's a simple answer, something of the wisdom of God in doing that. Yeah. Waiting for years for the Messiah, and then he fulfilled the prophecies. And, and, okay. Where does this leave us on the church? The church is just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful institution that God made. Many, many teachings in the New Testament so rich in telling about the various metaphors with which we can think of of what we are. The church is local, it's universal, it's visible, it's invisible, it's many, many things. And we're going to talk for, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 weeks on the doctrine of the church and how churches function, church government, church discipline, spiritual gifts and church, ministry in the church. And so it's an exciting topic to get going on, and we just started this morning.